So last week, we recorded our episode in two parts because our friends at DreamWorks said, hey, you might want to wait to record your intro until we announce something. And they didn't tell us what it was, but obviously it was the second season of She-Ra. Unfortunately, we don't have that hookup in the U.S. government. And so you heard us say last Friday, as you hear this, the country is in the midst of the longest government shutdown in history. And then that was not true, which is great. Right. I mean, I'm happy that that happened. But we were wrong. Again, again, we released something that was proven wrong <laughs> the day we released it. You know what we're going to have to do, Lauren? Do you remember that old SNL sketch where it was Dana Carvey as Tom Brokaw just recording possible futures? Yeah. We're going to have to just record a bunch of stuff that might happen and then part it out in case it ever does. Oh, I thought you were just going to have us open some sort of like fortune telling racket. We could we have a great power and a great responsibility here. We could just undo the future, I think. So you're saying if we say something that is happening, it will not happen and thus we make something not happen by negation? Yeah. Okay. And I mean we could go in either direction. We could do that or start talking to make sure we have weaponry for all possible futures. <laughs> but I like the one where I get to be sort of dictatorial over what's <laughs> about to happen on the planet. <laughs> well, friends, it's Friday. February 1st, and I'm sad to say I did not wake up a millionaire <laughs> with many beautiful women at my side. I mean, I guess if you have the power, that's the way to use it. Who has the power? <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to She-Ra Progressive of Power. Once again, I am Eric. And I'm Lauren. And guys, we're going to keep the, the party train a-rolling. Last week we had a guest from DreamWorks, uh, this show called She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Lauren, have you seen that show? A couple times. It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> we're just like picking a random animated show out of a hat that we really like and talking to people who actually work on the show. Uh, weird how that works out. Yeah, podcasting so, is super easy. Just <laughs> just that, call LA and tell them. You call the phone operator in LA <laughs> and you're like, hello, please give me a person who works on a cartoon, preferably one with strong female characters. And look what happens. Um, people listening who want to make a podcast, don't take anything from this, please. We're all full of nonsense. But the part that is not nonsense is we do have another guest from Shira and the Princesses of Power. We're very happy to welcome art director Elizabeth Christine to the show. Please welcome Hi Elizabeth. Guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So I missed some of your pre-show conversation with Lauren, but I heard you say it was a, a balmy, what, 55 degrees in Glendale today? Oh, it's not that bad. It's only 58. <sighs> I'm so angry right now. <laughs> yeah. They're, it's cold for us. They say not to talk about the weather as if the weather is this like droll default topic. But I think record breaking cold outside the studio today is maybe worth mentioning. I am in my parka in the studio. Yeah, because when you turn the red light on to say that you're recording, the heat goes off, which is nice most of the time. And right now, oh, not no, that nice. That's terrible. It's not that it's broken. There's a reason for it. They don't want the roar of the climate control to be heard in the podcasts. But today, maybe I wouldn't mind. This is what Lauren and I go through for our, our beloved audience. Um, <laughs> I appreciate your dedication and braving the polar vortex to be here today. Yeah, it's actually it's zero outside now. It got all the way up to zero today, so we're pretty Ooh. lucky. Sweater weather. <laughs> right? In in Chicago, it's hoodie weather for I sure. I saw a guy jogging on my way here, and I was like, stronger man than I. Anyway, let's talk about She-Ra. 
Yeah, bring it on. So, uh, Elizabeth, you are the art director of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, although you were a... Um, Season one, I actually came on as a visual development artist. I was one of the first artists they hired on the show, and I quickly moved up to design supervisor. So if you look in the credits for season one, that is what I am listed at. And now you are art director. So for any um, young folks out there who don't know, or maybe future podcast hosts who maybe you can say them a Google, uh, what, what exactly <laughs> does an art director do? Well, um, in the very beginning, it's the art director's responsibility to set up the style of the show, decide how things are going to look, and maintain that throughout this series. So I manage a team of incredibly talented artists, and I basically tell them what to draw and how to draw it. Well, that was going to be one of my first questions is we talked to Ray last mm -hmm. week, and they were talking about sort of their individual developmental process for specific characters like... Mm -hmm. uh, Entrapta and Perfuma. And so is it part of your job to make sure all of the characters and sets sort of look like they come from the same universe? And how does how does one do that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a big part of it. Um, maintaining continuity making sure it still looks like our show. I like to give, you know, the designers as much freedom as possible. So if they have a great idea, as long as it fits within our world, I absolutely encourage it. Uh, a big part of my job is to make sure the designs work with the story because at the end of the day we're trying to tell a good story and we want all of everything we design to fit that and make it better so i was watching this episode last night uh the beacon <laughs> is what we're talking about today and one of the things i noticed thinking about having you on today was that each of the sort of worlds or areas within the world uh, has a different like dominant color so yeah. um the whispering woods was very blue uh, the Fright Zone's very green. I would love to hear just sort of you wax philosophical about choosing the color palette of this show because it's such a strong part of its identity. Oh, man, I love the color palettes we do in this show. Um, I really have to give credit where credit's due. That was all my predecessor, Lamb Chamberlain, who set up these color palettes. And our thought behind it was we want this to feel different. We don't want to do the bad guys are red. We don't want to do the forest is green. So we kind of had to do a lot of development with that, figure out how we can bring in blues and purples and not make the forest feel like it's underwater, um, how we could make the Fright Zone feel really cool in technology, but still kind of gross um, and, yeah, you know, gross. <laughs> <laughs> but not like red and not like bright blue. Um, so we really tried to push ourselves with it. Um, some things are really hard to uh, describe without, uh, you know, your standard, like, Disney colors. So there's a lot of lime green in the Fright Zone. We still want it to feel evil. Um, blue and mysterious, uh, but still fun and magical. That's the best color to go with it. So that's kind of where it all went on. And, you know, working with Mattel as well, we try to pay homage to uh, the toys and their original color palettes. So that was a big inspiration, especially in the princess's colors. I, I need to go back for a second. So lime green is a color that designates evil? I had no idea. Oh yeah, totally. Oh, every Disney movie, the bad guy has lime green. No. Yeah, like not not necessarily in their clothes, but you know, Ursula has lime green magic. Scar's eyes Scar are green. And Scar's like be prepared sequence is very That's green. All green. Yeah. That voodoo guy from Princess and the Frog, all bright green. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I've already learned more than I thought I would <laughs> learn today. That blows my mind. Speaking of the Fright Zone, uh, I was paying close attention to the sets watching the episode this time, and they're all kind of meeting with Hordak in like a derelict, almost a crashed ship. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're obviously trying to tell stories with mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. sets. Um, you know, what stories were you trying to tell with the sets in this season? And maybe what stories are you hoping we're, we're looking at in the future? Um, well, that's a very keen observation about the Fright Zone. Um, I probably can't touch much on it now, but that is something that you should take a look out for in season two, which is coming out real soon. Yep. That Fright Zone scene was so cool. Like, it was the first time I think that we had seen Hordak's throne chamber, right? And I love that you had the classic kind of filmation villain lineup of like, here, oh, yeah. right? Like, Catra Scorpia, Shadow Weaver, and then let's put Grizzlor there too, because he was <laughs> in the original show and that was the pose he was in often. Sadly, no Mantana to dunk down a, a trap door. Can you tell us, oh, no. does, does Hordak's <laughs> throne room have a trap door? Um. I would put nothing past him. <laughs> okay. I assume that there's a long-suffering Mantena who's been dunked a million he's times. He's already down there is yeah. the reason he's not in the show. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah uh, there's a reason he never made it to the final lineup. Uh, it's because he's in the dungeon. <laughs> Poor guy. I mean, even Kyle has a leg up on Mantena. Yikes. <laughs> Everyone loves Kyle. Well, that's true. That really worked out. Yeah, I found that out for sure after our last episode. There was a lot of Kyle tweets happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. Well, you picked the one, like, little blonde white boy, and it, the internet just ah. runs for him. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. So that's that's what we're really here to ask, Elizabeth, is why aren't there more white people in the show? <laughs> Boo, oh, no. my God. <laughs> Because I'm trying to make it represent the real world. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, okay. Good answer. Uh, so I actually have a serious question about that, which I think dovetails with the the purpose of our show nicely. Now, for we do have a, a lot of new listeners, um, thanks to Ray and our, our DreamWorks friends. I do want to say up front, this is also a political show, and we are very serious about not making our guests say anything that would get them in trouble. But I think this is a relatively safe question. You can tell me if it's not. All right. So there's a lot of different cultures in Etheria, which I think it, it's really cool. And there's a lot of thoughtfulness put into um, designing these cultures to make them feel distinct. And so mm-hmm. from a creative standpoint, what is, and I am going to ask you to wax philosophic now, what is the process of like <laughs> imbuing Etheria with so much richness and diversity while all making it feel like of a part? Like it still all belongs in the same show, you know? That's an excellent question. Um, and one that I feel like I've personally just kind of lucked into that it's worked out. Um, my goal whenever you know I'm asking Ray to draw a new character is say, hey, we haven't had a character like this. Can you do that? Um, and usually they do. Um, and they're the most thoughtful person, honestly, on the show when it comes to representing different cultures in a mindful and accurate and sensitive way. Um, there's been a lot of times where we've had to change things. Um, oh, I can't, I can't tell you all the cool things we've had to change season, season two. I'll tell you, but you know, just like adjusting skin tones or adjusting a style of clothing, um, and, or even just making someone purple because we don't want to offend anyone. So we've been trying so, so hard to represent as many cultures as we can, um, and represent diversity without necessarily offending anyone or misrepresenting a culture that already exists in our world. 
Like I'm fascinated by I don't know if they have a name, but the kind of like deer creatures who we see in the in the woods in the first episode, like they're almost like indigenous art is is very cool. Yes. Mm-hmm. The Thamorians. Oh, those are Thamorians. Okay. Yeah, they're little deer people. Awesome. Um, and I think a big part of it is we just get really excited whenever we get to create a new world or a new village. Um, originally, we wanted to you know explore all of Etheria, a new place every episode, which is just impossible in animation. So anytime we get to introduce a new character, a new culture, um, we really want to take it as far um, and make it as exciting as possible. Well, that's a great point, too, because like the economy of animation, I think, and we love them, but it, it would be remiss not to say that Filmation, one of their biggest drawbacks is that the economy is is very apparent. Like, you know, they have three oh, yeah. to five voice actors and a bevy of stock animation that gets reused every episode. And mm-hmm. I think the new show is so beautiful and smooth that, like, I, I don't notice when things like that are happening. I think a large part of it is that every main character has their own actor or actress who really, like, embodies them yeah. with love. But also the art, it, I don't know, like, you're telling me that there was restrictions on what you could draw. And I'm like, oh, it all looks great to me. Great. I love it. Um, you know, we always want to do more than we actually can. Uh, making TV comes with its own restrictions that I personally love, but sometimes you just don't have the time to put every ounce of perfection into it. I've been doing a lot of looking at uh, the sort of tech and look and feel of the first ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I want to ask, you know, where did some of the inspiration from for that come from, you know, specifically with this ancient but uh, forward-looking culture? What were you guys trying to say with those designs? And second, did y'all get first one's language tattoos? Is that something that happened? <laughs> Lauren and I did. No. I just saw an Instagram <laughs> post, and I wasn't sure if that was permanent or not. Oh, yep. There's there's a few of us. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I love that. It was so precious. Yeah. Um, well, to answer your, your first question, um, the technology of the first ones, actually... My art director, Lamb, told me when I was working on the very first, like, first one's designs that they, their style emulated um, hipster geometric tattoos. So that's kind of where it came from. But we really wanted something um, to contrast the organic nature of Etheria because it's wild, it's magic, it's very curving, it's curve into curve. So we wanted to bring in a straight aspect to conflict with it. Speaking of the backgrounds, uh, my biggest thing that I do while I watch she now is I'm looking at the who's who's in the paintings in the background and oh, who's yeah. in the pictures in the background. Uh, what, I'm there. Pardon? I'm in there. Yeah. In, the, are, in, in prom? Yep. There's, Every member of our team who was on the show at the time is in that episode. Okay. Confirmed. We, we were unsure about that in the Princess Prom episode, but that is true. I was curious about, you know, what helps you... For, for fun in, you know, in terms of self-insert, but also in terms of lore-like nuggets that you're trying to put in? What helps you make those decisions? You know, who gets to be in the murals and in the background scenery? Um, I leave that up to the designer. So, for example, the cat painting in, in Trapta's episode, that's my cat. I drew it. <laughs> I demanded that she be in there. Um, but I really like to let the designers just kind of have fun with it. You know, sometimes you work so much and take things too seriously. I encourage people to hide whatever they want in the background. My only rule is no dicks. 
Um, we are right <laughs> that is the loudest I've heard Eric like laugh, I think, while recording ever. <laughs> Do you want to get into the episode? Because we can. Oh, yeah. That thing we're supposed to talk about. Tight. Cool. So we're talking about the beacon today, as Lauren mentioned. <laughs> this is uh, part of the, the multi-part episode that uh, ends the season. And this is kind of the, the middle of it where... Well, I'll do the recap after the fact. We all know what happens in the beacon. Hey, guys. Here's my recap recorded in my apartment after the show. Episode 10, The Beacon. Blaming themselves, the princesses question the alliance. Meanwhile, Glimmer is hiding glitches from her mom, and Adora is worried about her training. Do you know that I did a semester of radio in college? Could you tell by my awesome voice? Got some Nine Inch Nails tickets to give away. All right, let's go back to the show. So the beacon's great. What a, what a, again, just like last week's episode, it really does a great job of contrasting like sadness and serious emotion with like some really funny, joyful, uh, lovely moments. Oh, thank you. I mean, this episode was definitely a challenge for us. It's a lot of exposition. It's it's really setting up 111 in a lot of ways um, and kind of bringing us down from the emotional roller coaster that was uh, Prison Break. I definitely think this episode has the saddest sequence in it for me, which is all the kingdoms sort of closing themselves off. You know, the alliance breaks and we see the ice crawling up and the the waves crawling up and everyone just putting up walls. And the, mm -hmm. particularly no, seeing that through Glimmer's eyes, I just found that to be the most devastating part of the entire season. <laughs> For me, I think the part that hits hardest is, uh, so Angela, uh, Ange I called her Angela. Oh my God. <laughs> Angela. Uh, Angela, my favorite. Angela insists that Glimmer have dinner with her. Uh, after this kind of harrowing experience and kind of for the first time we see Angela lose it in not like a commanding way like she just kind of gives into her emotions and confesses that it's she feels that it's her fault that uh, King Micah is dead and oh it's just such a that scene hit me real real hard I'm surprised that's not your scene of choice actually Lauren well I I'm on team Angela like always I talk about her every episode <laughs> <laughs> I will say um her confessing sort of that she just wanted to talk as she pushes everyone away from her with her yelling and, and emotional outbursts. I, again, I just, I just relate to her. I feel so bad when uh, someone's grief and someone's trauma, you know, has clearly not been processed in a healthy way, but they still have to uphold their duty and they still have to uphold their relationships. And Angela is just uh, a beautiful character in this episode for sure. Yeah, and you know that scene between Angela and Glimmer is one of my favorites because it's so quintessential teenage girl and mom. One of our executives was like, "Oh, Glimmer's being like kind of mean to her mom. Like that doesn't seem right." And every woman in the room was just like, "Um, excuse me, no. That's <laughs> Do you have a mom? Cuz it's been <laughs> that's how it is." Yeah, so I really appreciated um in our story them having a moment to be vulnerable with each other and really make a connection and really be mother and daughter and not be a rebellion fighter and a queen. They do, they do, uh, is, who is it? Bo points out that Angela's playing the queen card to get Glimmer to dinner. And it yeah. was, yeah, it was nice to see those walls come down. That was um, my favorite line. And also I'm the queen and I can make you. <laughs> <laughs> there was a scene, it might've been that one, uh, but there was a moment this episode watched through that I caught that I didn't catch before 
which is Glimmer and Bo and uh, Adora, they go off to Glimmer's room mm-hmm. so Glimmer can recharge. And just as they're, as they're moving away from Angela, Adora looks back and says, I'm sorry. She apologizes to the queen. And that just dual loyalty, like I'm, I'm loyal to the rebellion, but also my friend. There's just that mm-hmm. tiny moment of conflict in Adora. And I, I'm glad I caught it this time. It's, it's very special right. and well done. Oh, yeah. This episode's all about guilt. I think every character feels it at some point. I mean, they all feel responsible for Entrapta, especially Adora, even more so Glimmer. Um, I love that you actually get to contrast the Angela Glimmer moment with Shadow Weaver and Catra. Yes. Except mm-hmm. it, like they had their moment and they were just two ships passing in the night. Like they could have been chill and it didn't work out. Yeah, I feel like every character in this episode, including on the Horde, is dealing with some amount of uh, trauma or grief or guilt. And I think that Shadow Weaver Catra scene is one of my favorite in the whole season uh, because for a second we see Catra try to be real. I think because she sees her own experience in what Hordak did to Shadow Weaver mm-hmm. and uh, Shadow, Shadow Weaver rebuffs her and then also kind of tries to be real, but in like the most heartless way. You know, like, yeah, exactly. Oh, well, she's not good with feelings. No, Shadow Weaver does something that I think a lot of abusers do because, like it or not, the worst people in the world that we can think of are still people and they have reasons for what they did and they can justify their actions in their own mind. And so, Shadow Weaver is able to sincerely look Catra in the eye and say, I wanted you to be strong, as if maybe that would make it okay for Katra. And it was such a good Katra moment when she goes, well, congratulations, you know, you succeeded, yeah, you cold-hearted jerk. Yeah, definitely. And to Shadow Weaver, that is a completely reasonable justification. Um, she's the kind of person, like other abusers, that their feelings about the situation trump all others. And I feel like we see that justification in in real life, you know, from... from uh, Maybe when kids grow up in homes that are, are really rough on them, their guardians or caretakers will say things like, oh, I was just trying to get them ready for the real world. Like, mm-hmm. It's horrible. I'm also glad we're talking about this now because I originally wanted to talk about it next week, but we have a nine-year-old on the show, and I don't think oh, that, no. that is the appropriate <laughs> time. But yeah, I, I think this is such a great... Like, it's one of those cool things animation can do now where if you're an adult and you understand the psychology, you see that the horde is nothing but this cycle of abuse that perpetuates. But as a kid, mm-hmm. you still understand, like, oh, Shadow Weaver's real bad and she means business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really appreciate that people have recognized this abusive nature in this character because uh, I think it's really easy to write someone off like, oh, that's the bad guy. They're being mean. But there are people like this that exist everywhere in everyone's lives. And it's important to be able to realize that they are toxic. And even though they think they're right, it's okay to stick up for yourself and be a strong person without them. Yeah. But, you know, also she is being abused by Hordak. And he's kind of the the guy at the top of this pyramid of of abuse. And that's that's horrible. But I think it, it does a nice job of explaining without excusing, you know, where you understand where Shadow Weaver is coming from. And that's really cool. Mm -hmm. It feels like a great extension of the character that Lauren and I both fell in love with, but filmation was maybe just a little too bright to go into the psychology of it. It makes, it makes Adora's journey way more intense and powerful too, because 
this is basically a multi-generational cycle of abuse and it's hard to escape that in a real life family and it was certainly mm-hmm. hard to escape in this fictional family too. Yeah, I mean she still hasn't really mentally escaped from all of it. Um her relationship with Catra is still so strained and complicated and Catra's still suffering. Adora still wants to help her. I think suffering <laughs> is is the key word is like this is a show where everybody is is dealing with something and everyone's suffering in their own way and I think this episode really brings that to the forefront. And you're right that like there's not really an action set piece and there's not necessarily like act 1, act 2, act 3 like the typical mm-hmm. Uh, arc of this episode, but I think it's a really great study of how our different characters react. Like, I love that Bo has internalized everything. Like, he has carried guilt from the prom until he explodes in Glimmer's room of like, I don't understand why you guys don't see I'm the one who's responsible. Because that's oh, a very Bo thing, you know? Whereas know. Adora's He's... like... Yeah, sorry. Oh, no. Just... Oh, man. Can you imagine if Shadow Weaver ever got her hands on Bo? He would totally buy into all that manipulation. He's the perfect target for a narcissist. Oh, no, I hadn't thought about that, and now I'm going to have nightmares. (laughs) Isn't it obvious? This is all my fault. If I hadn't gone to Princess Prom with Perfuma, then we wouldn't have been separated, and then I wouldn't have gotten kidnapped, and you wouldn't be sick. See? All my fault. That's crazy. It's obviously my fault. I let myself get distracted. I shouldn't have been so weird about you hanging out with someone else. I'm sorry, Bo. You can't be sorry when I'm trying to be sorry. Yeah, but your sorry is wrong and mine is right. You know what? Let's just hug. Well, there were so many micro, you know, progressive messages in this episode that we haven't even gotten to yet. And a couple of them came from the Horde. I got really contemplative about... um, Shadow Weaver kind of stealing Catra's plan and mm-hmm. being really self-aggrandizing and trying to take credit and then when it went badly being unwilling to take the blame and I think that uh has politically happened several times recently in America <laughs> and also oh, yeah. there's a moment about consent in this episode and it's <laughs> uh you know the characters are kind of clumsy about it um We hear Scorpia say, don't touch another woman's tail without asking. But then Mm. literally in that same moment, Catra is touching Entrapta without Entrapta asking. And, you know, it's a a positive message, but you also see the people uh, maybe who still need to learn that lesson, too. And I just I couldn't I couldn't believe how many little lessons and like little messages were just packed into this episode. It was to the point where when it ended, I was looking away from the screen and didn't realize that the episode had ended because it just (laughs) goes right on into the next one. And I was so engaged. Oh, that's, it warms my heart to hear you say that, you know, our writers and our borderists, they work so hard and they really think about every detail and, you know, they really understand our characters and what they're trying to convey through every action. So hearing you, you know, pick up on that, like when, when Catra is like petting Entrapta, it's like the creepiest moment to me. It's like, she knows exactly what she's doing. Like she's being invasive and like she's being manipulative and ugh, it grosses me out so much. It seems so practiced. Catra's sort of charisma and ability to convince is, is so like sharp and rehearsed in that moment. Yeah, it really made my skin crawl too. Well, she's seen it. Shadow Weaver does it all the time. Maybe not to Catra, but to Adora. She touches her hair constantly. 
I have a, a, another question that I'm not sure we can answer or not, but one of the key points in this episode is Shira's powers mm-hmm. and trying to discover her healing abilities, how to make them work. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought about like Superman and how Superman uh, over the many decades sort of gained new powers that were written into the comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. My question then is, is the scope of Shira's powers already known to your team? Like, do you have that list somewhere or can that just theoretically grow infinitely? <laughs> um, that's, that's a good a question. Dangerous question. It is. Um, so in the scope of the show that we have planned out, um, we, we've reached the end. So um, we know everything <laughs> that she is going to do. That being said, you know, the best thing about this magical world that we've created is there's always new ways to make magic. Follow up, who would win in a fight between Shira and <laughs> Superman? <laughs> Please don't answer that. The first He-Man uh, narrative appearance was in a Superman comic. Did you know that, Lauren? I did not know that. That's not a thing I would know. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Why am I the guy who knows that? Fun fact. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, that does that does make it interesting now that He-Man, Masters of the Universe versus Injustice is a thing that's happening. Knowing that history actually does color that for me. I don't mean to make fun of you because... You're a nerd, but it it's still a pretty cool thing to know. <laughs> Thanks. Knowledge is power. Keep learning weird trivia. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's kind of all right. I'll, just for like thirty seconds, I'm going to recap this. So basically, <laughs> um, Superman gets teleported to Eternia for some reason, and Skeletor tricks him into thinking that He Man is the evil Overlord, and Superman is so ready to trust Skeletor that they team up to fight He Man, and then Skeletor turns on them both. It's pretty tight, but also really bad. So he meets a blue skeleton man, and he was like, you seem on the up and up. Well, he's Superman. You know, he overcorrects by being, you know, he's so not prejudiced. We don't judge books by their covers here. Right. Maybe that's a cool, chill skeleton man. <laughs> You're right. That was very presumptuous of me, and I take it back, and I apologize. Plus, if you see, I mean, a big, blonde, muscly guy. I hate them immediately. Cloth. Right. He, who lives in a skull castle. that guy. Yeah. Come on. Okay, why doesn't Skeletor live in the Skull Castle? That's my problem. I've always wondered that. Wasn't he that supposed to? doesn't seem like a good guy castle. <laughs> I feel like he was supposed to originally, and like Castle Grayskull is like his home, and he's trying to get back to it. He's been unhomed by He-Man. Man. Oh, no. There's got to be like an entire fanfic genre where <laughs> He-Man is actually the bad guy, and Skeletor is just, just trying to get his piece of the pie. I'm sure. Hey, you know... No matter what side you're on, uh, they always think they're the good guys. So that's what a great villain is. Oh, yeah. It's so fun, by the way, that like we see almost nothing of Hordak in season one. It's it's so centered on uh, Catra and Shadow Weaver. And mm-hmm. I, I love that this foreboding evil is lurking in the background because Lord and I have talked about how in filmation, like, after every episode kind of ends with a Shira Hordak battle, we're like, all right. Hordak shows up and turns into a train or whatever. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, where do you stand on Hordak's transformations? Will we be. No, please don't answer that. I'm, no, do answer it. I must know if he turns into a train. <laughs> uh, the, to my knowledge, there is no Hordak train. Um, <laughs> Dang. In coming episodes. Um, nor does he snort, mm. which is. That's fair. The most unintimidating thing for a evil supervillain to do. In yeah, my it is like they took a dart and just threw it at a dartboard for like, what are his quirks going to be? Yeah, <laughs> found him. Truth. 
yeah, some of the voice acting, you know, back in the day. Well, when you really, only have like, three or five people, they have to pull some weird voices out of themselves. Well, you know, I've I've said it before, but I think one of the, the huge strengths of your iteration is that we get, um, you know, characters who are, are really just there to sell toys like a Scorpia or who didn't even have a toy or an Entrapta. And then you give them to just one actress and let them make them their own. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. we have like real pathos and like Entrapta coming to realize that did my friends leave me behind? Like, no, that can't be right. Is And she plays that scene like with such subtlety, so much so that actually the first time I didn't think it wasn't effective a performance. And then watching it again, I'm like, oh no, I, I see now with the manipulation why this is delivered this way. But like in the old show, that would just be Melendi Britt trying to keep up her accent long enough to sell the line, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And the voice cast on our show, I am such a huge fan of. They've done such a great job. And, you know, you can draw a character or write for a character until the cows come home. But when you hear their voice, that's when they become real. And their performances has actually shaped the stories that we've told. Uh, Katra is largely influenced by AJ and the performances she brings to those readings. Some friends, they left you and they're not coming back. Isn't that just like Adora? She left me behind too, like I was nothing. And me. I mean, I didn't want to go, but she could have at least asked. Adora got her precious bow and glimmer back. All these princesses care about is people who are just like them. But you're not like them, are you? Uh, Elizabeth, let's pause for a second. I I didn't get to ask you, what is kind of your favorite part of working on the show like do you have a favorite character that you've you've been drawn to i asked ray who their like children were do you feel like you have any children <laughs> it, it's hard because they're all our babies and i love all my children equally um right right of course you know yeah right of course you know what? i have to say my favorite character we have not met yet <sighs> i was going to put that in, in my list of questions and just knew that I couldn't was, are there going to be new sets and new people to look forward to? But of course there are, and you can't tell us about them. All right. I'm going to well, ask this and you can tell me if this is out of bounds. <laughs> is, is this character that you're speaking of animal, vegetable, mineral? No. Um, is, is this character one that exists elsewhere in the lore or is this a new creation? Um, can I speak to that? Because I, I feel like every character we introduce on the show is from the Shira, the original series. So, but it's like all other characters that we've introduced. That's a dramatically new interpretation. Cool. <laughs> that was. So I will answer your question with a non-answer. Eric, Eric's already smiling. You gave him plenty of information because now he gets to go through the Shira Bible and look at all of the characters it could possibly be. Oh yeah, I have a character encyclopedia. You know it. (laughs) I want to tell you everything. It's I'm so excited. I'm thrilled that they announced season two before I came to talk to you because I am so stoked on season two. Uh, You know, making TV shows, especially animated ones, it takes a long time. So start to finish, it's about a year to make one episode. So I've been waiting for people to see this forever, at least a year, I would say. It feels like forever. This is, you know, after season one, we really figured out our characters. We kind of set up the relationships and the stories we want to tell. We figured out what we can and cannot do in terms of, like, uh, getting designs done and getting things animated that look very good. So in season two, we see some really cool places. 
Um, we get to meet some fun new people. Like we get some new painters. Uh, everything starts looking gorgeous. <laughs> oh, wait, I shouldn't say that because that sounds like I'm tooting my own horn because that's that's when I started art directing. But there's really great stuff coming that I, I'm so stoked. <laughs> so I, I think that's such a great point. And we talked to Ray about it too. Uh, so you've sat on this for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And while the team was sitting on She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, the world was morphing into a place that desperately needed this show. Like yeah. you probably saw the writing on the wall a little bit in 2015 or 16, but boy, by the time this dropped, we needed it. Uh, oh. Did you have a sense of how it would be received? Uh, we had hopes. Um, when we were making this, we were really feeling filling a void of what we wanted to see, what we wish we could have seen um, in cartoons growing up when we were young and impressionable. Uh, we didn't think we would need it as much as we did. Like I, you know, the day after that election, we were, it was like 10 in the morning. We were in the writer's room. Um, there were screwdrivers and we were just like, sitting there in stunt silence. Um, and I think because of that, we really knew we had to take things to the next level and not back down on any of the stories we wanted to tell. I mean, I've been waiting for this for so long. Uh, but also I like, it's weird because Lauren and I always talk about ultimately this isn't for us and that's the value of it. And yet we appreciate it so much, you know, but I'm mostly glad that little kids who don't care about the original have something really positive to enjoy and like get them thinking good thoughts. I watched a YouTube video literally last night, uh, some very young person doing reacts to the 80s Shira and just thinking it was so stupid and so absurd. They're all good. They're all good. Oh, well. Yeah, our guest next week, who is a a nine-year-old, said she started watching the Filmation show after she finished the DreamWorks one, and she liked them both, which I think is really sweet. Oh, that makes me happy. Yeah, it it means a lot having, um, you know, diehard fans of the original series, like, want to watch our show and, like, really get into it and have such great insights and, like, really take the time to think about it and appreciate it. Um, You know, as someone who cared more about the toys than the cartoon when I was growing up, Um, there were certain things that I didn't pay attention to in terms of carrying on to our new series. Um, this wasn't created to be just a nostalgia blast for 30 year olds like me. Um, or us. Well, there's so everything now is a remake of something from the eighties or nineties and they're just made to be a nostalgia blast, which is like cool and fun. But we wanted to introduce this beloved property to a new audience. Like that's what's going to give it longevity. That's what's going to give it new life is to have a new group of fans who can carry it forward. And eventually they'll be making remakes of this in the future. Hopefully, maybe. I don't know. Um, so I know that we've gotten a lot of feedback and, you know, oh, I, I didn't like this so much because it was different from the original. It's like, yeah, like, I totally get that. Um, and we want to give a nod to those diehard fans in the a nod to the original series, but at the end of the day, like we're, we're trying to make something new because She-Ra already exists right. and it's great and it's perfect. And we don't want to change that. So I, uh, I've mentioned on the show, but just for point of framing, I work at cards against humanity. And one of my partners here, Max, who's one of the creators of the game has this really brilliant thing. He likes to say that, um, people think that they love star Wars, but what they love is how star Wars made them feel the first time that they saw it. And so they're always chasing that feeling. And I think, when that clicked for me with princesses of power was in the second episode 
uh, when Adorabo and Glimmer see the um, like this wasteland in the aftermath of a horde attack on Thamor and how much like pain and suffering the horde is causing, and it's actually like horrifying. And mm-hmm. I'm like, this is this is what I always saw in Shira, but wasn't explicitly there because it just couldn't be, and now it's here. And I feel like this is this makes me feel like shira used to make me feel but it's different and it's new and it's oh i don't know i think you thread that line so perfectly of like familiar but exciting and new oh that's like the sweetest thing anyone has ever said about our show thank you uh did you have did you have anything else you wanted to bring to us today we've taken up an awful lot of your time you've been so generous i like talking to you i don't know is there anything that we need to say um can we talk about emerald city that got announced yeah can say that list. Um, your list. I'm but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I Yeah, you know, fans want to keep an eye out for Emerald City Comic Con. Noelle is going to be there, and she will probably have cool things to talk about and show everyone. Oh man, am I going to have to go to Seattle? We yeah, probably. Every, every time one of these comes up, we're like, oh, do we get on a plane? Maybe this will be the time. Yeah, maybe DreamWorks will be nice and they'll just, like, give you con tickets. I don't know how that works. I haven't ever gotten any and I made the show. (laughs) (laughs) But get a press pass. I don't know. Yeah, I have enough industry friends I could probably sneak in. Um, I used to own a comic book store and then I managed one. And you work for Cards Against Humanity. Oh, and that. Yeah, that's true. Oh, no big deal. NVD. Uh, Yeah, when my secret project that I've been working on for two years finally gets announced, well, maybe we can team up and do something cool together. (laughs) But I cannot talk about that. Look, I have a secret too, guys. against humanity. (laughs) These are really cool talks where it's just people who can't share what they're currently working on talking about how they can't talk about it. Lauren, what what secret do you have, Lauren? You must have one. I, I don't right now. My secret for a while was that we were going to have DreamWorks people on our show, and now that cat's out of the bag. So <laughs> That cat is out of the bag. I'm here. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, oh, this was so wonderful. Um, is Would you like, if you would like fans to find you on the internet, is there a way that they can do so? Um, I'm not super big on the internet. Um, you That's know, smart. I'm, yeah. I'm old, so I don't have a Twitter. But... Uh, I do have an Instagram. It's my name, Elizabeth Christine. That's it. Awesome. I'll follow. I don't cool. think you can be too old for Twitter. Stares awkwardly in the president's direction. Uh, <laughs> no, you definitely can be too old for Twitter. Fair. Yeah. That might that might actually, I might have just proved that point. Yeah. Global waning yeah. is a real problem, you guys. But why is it so cold? Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for being game to come on our show and talk with two old nerds. Oh my Uh, gosh, thanks for having me. I feel honored. Oh, we feel honored. Everyone's honored for the honor of Grayskull. Oh, that was a good segue. Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower. This podcast has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>